Bibles, let's open up to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, and uh, we're going to look at verses 21 through 27. Uh, as you find your, your way there, um, so I'm, some of you that may know this, may not know this, I'm 39 years old. I'm, I'm not like old, but I'm not young anymore, kind of somewhere in between. Uh, just puts me in like a perpetual state of confusion, I guess. But uh, when I grew up uh, out in East Texas, we were, we were kind of country boys out there, and uh, things that were permitted in East Texas then uh, certainly would not be permitted uh, today. But I grew up uh, playing sports, was active, uh, football, baseball, played lots of soccer, uh, and was always in athletics uh, in, in junior high and high school. Our coaches had this game that we would play when two players got at each other on the practice field and almost got into a fight but wouldn't get into a fight. And when he sensed there was tension, we uh, did a little game. We just called it stick fighting. And uh, what that meant was it didn't mean you get like bow staffs and like, like go knock each other out, but you would grab this like two-foot little pole. And they would bring all the mats out on the floor. And whoever it was that you were beefing with at the time, you would both grab onto that stick. And the game was you would try to wrestle the stick away from the other person. Sometimes we didn't have sticks, we would use towels. And you can imagine that in the midst of a bunch of teenage boys that are a little bit temperamental and struggling with anger issues and overly being aggressive, uh, this would get bloody at times. And people would walk away with bloody noses, uh, bloody lips, but this was how we settled being angry with one another. And this is how we would diffuse that. There were even times where uh, our coaches would let us put on boxing gloves and we would box inside the athletic room and just seek to beat the snot out of each other in doing this. Now, if you did that today uh, as a teacher, you'd probably be fired, right? Uh, if you were a student and you did this, you would be in deep trouble, but that was another day and another time in which we lived and what we grew up in. Well, today we have Jesus talking about and addressing this very same issue, not stick fighting or wrestling with towels, but the issue of anger. And the posture of the believer in light of, of anger and what it is that God says about that towards Christians. And then what does it mean to be angry? And then what position does that then put us in before the Lord? And then how are we and should we be addressing those things? Last week we saw how Jesus comes in and he proclaims this truth that I've not abolished the law, but I've come to fulfill it. And so what was lacking in it to any degree, now I am your standard in which you are to follow. And Jesus didn't lower the bar, but rather he raised the bar quite significantly. And he says, now all these rules you're throwing out, but you're going to follow me. And you're going to listen to me. And you're going to obey me. And in the midst of all this, it's going to get even a little bit stickier. And so I want to read for us, beginning in verse 21 of Matthew 5. Where Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. These are very harsh, very direct words given by Jesus amongst 5,000 some odd people that had gathered on the side of this small hill to investigate and to hear this preacher rabbi talk about the things of, of the kingdom. And here he says in this moment that it's not just good enough for you not to take the life of someone, but rather I'm going to raise the standard and I'm going to lift it up and I'm going to elevate it a little bit. 
What Jesus does just in these few verses, don't miss this. He takes the punishment that was given to those that would take the life of someone, the punishment of death and destruction and forfeiture of eternal life with him in the pit of hell. And then he places that same condemnation on those that would murder and he puts it right on top of people that would hate and be angry. Very same punishment, death and destruction for those that hate as opposed to those that actually take a life. We read this and, and we should struggle with this to a certain degree because these are very direct words. This is not a seeker-driven text of, of Scripture really meant to make us feel good in any way. This is meant to remind us of who God is and his standard for us and how he now calls us not to just meet the bare minimum, but he calls us to live far above the way in which the, the world would live and, and maybe even in the ways in which we see other well-meaning Christians and brothers and sisters live. He raises the bar for us quite significantly. He does that in a couple of different stages. If you notice in verse 21, he, he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old. So this is referring to the people that would have received the original moral law, the 10 commandments as God would have delivered them. And the 10 commandments, and part of that was, hey, you, you, it's a good idea. We shouldn't go around killing each other. We shouldn't take the lives of, of innocent people. We, we cannot murder other individuals or you're going to be liable to judgment. But then he says in verse 22, but every one of you who is angry, you basically commit murder in your own heart. You commit murder by being angry. But what does that mean? Well, that word angry there in your English translation comes from a Aramaic word, just it's raka, R-A-K-A. And what that literally means, it means showing contempt towards someone. It means taking a, a position of superiority over an individual and even a circumstance and allowing that position of superiority to inform your feelings and your thoughts and what it is that you think about them. And it, and it means that you are putting yourself in a position where you look down on another person. You have anger in your heart, malice in your heart. It develops into bitterness. And Jesus says that the same way, the same condemnation for those that take the life of innocent people the same condemnation is now equally on top of people who harbor anger and contempt in their heart towards other people. You're angry with your brother, you're liable to judgment. You insult your brother, you'll be liable to the council. If you say you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. Harsh. It's almost unsettling. You think about all the times in your life where maybe you didn't verbally say something out loud, but you thought it in your mind and in your heart, and you thought, you fool. Some translations that are a little bit uh, uh, more into the, the common English language, you, you moron, you, you imbecile, you idiot, you fool. And here's what Jesus is saying. Whether you say it out loud whether you verbally or articulate it out loud or say it under your breath, just the fact that we get into a position where we think it and we feel it, we're guilty of it. 
a much higher standard than the Old Testament, a deeper standard. The reason why Jesus does this, it's not that God has changed in his character and his nature. He's always demanded from us a sense of, of be holy for I am holy and pursue justice and perfection as I pursue justice, as I am perfect. Be perfect like me in pursuing that, the aim of that. His goal was, was always calling us to a higher level of, of living. And, and yet here in this moment, he reminds us that what God cares about first and foremost amongst his people is that we would have clean hands and a pure heart before him. Don't make this mistake. God does care about your actions. But what he primarily cares about is that the heart condition in which you live your life that performs the actions, that dictate the actions, that is what he is chiefly concerned with this morning. Not our outward conformity, not our behavior, not how well we can follow rules and, and religion and, and how closely we can keep the law, but rather what God is concerned about amongst his people this morning is where our hearts are. And if they're in the right place, towards one another, towards his church, towards our city, towards our state, towards our country, not taking a, a position of superiority, over someone. I guess the one exception that we would allow that it was probably found in a, in a lost text somewhere else is unless you're the TCU uh, Horn Frogs playing the SMU Mustangs, but that didn't really pan out too well yesterday for anyone, did it? But we take these positions oftentimes of superiority and we end up in these places and Jesus begins to address the anger. It, it fleshes itself out in really simple ways. Getting on and off the highway. And you're on the highway and you're cruising along and somebody is trying to merge onto the highway and, and you don't get over, but you're like, they need to slow down. Who do they think they are? And, and we sort of take this posture of, of almost contempt towards them. Like they need to slow down or, or they need to get out of my way. And, or perhaps you're the one trying to get on the highway and you're annoyed that this person won't let you over and they're going in the slow lane. And we take this position of contempt and, and almost anger towards them. Yet how often are we the one driving down the road and we have no idea about the person and what they're doing, yet we are equally as responsible there in that moment. And Jesus just simply says, you will be held accountable for the desire and the condition, first and foremost, of your heart and your posture towards other people. It doesn't matter what, what side of the political aisle you're on, Republican or Democrat, Libertarian, doesn't matter if you're white or uh, Hispanic or, or African-American or Asian. It, it doesn't matter your, your race. It doesn't matter how much money you make. That we are never to put ourselves in positions, or at least we should be in a position where we are constantly guarding the condition and the feelings of our hearts because God cares about that position. It's the higher standard. And it's the most loving standard. Jesus goes on in verse 23, he says this, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, he says, leave your gift. Leave the altar and go and first be reconciled to him. 
And then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So the most literal reading of this could read something like this. So if you're offering your gift at the altar at church in worship, singing songs as an offering, if you're serving in small group or community group and you're a teacher, you're a caregiver, you're, you're an outreach leader, you're, you're offering your, your gift at the altar as a deacon or to serve somebody else. Or maybe you're a teacher, but yet there is not reconciliation between you and someone else and you're walking in a, in a rhythm of enmity towards that individual or an air of superiority for, for some reason. He says, leave the gift at the altar and go. There's an immediacy that exists here in Jesus' words. Be reconciled to them quickly. Go to them and, and to seek reconciliation. But here's where I think sometimes we, we swing and we, we whiff a little bit is that a lot of times as Christians, and this is what I hear over and over and over again in pastoral ministry, but I have a right to be angry. There's a righteous indignation that exists, that, that I was equally, uh, somebody hurt me or, or harmed me in some way, or they said something about me, and, and I am right to be upset. I am right to be angry. I am right to be indignant because I took the high road and they took the low road. I'm in the position in this point where I'm being the most humble. And what Christians end up doing is we end up getting stuck there after a while. I want to talk to you just for a moment about what righteous anger actually is and isn't. Because I think it's instructive when we get to this place about reconciliation, I think we first have to understand what is something that is righteous and how long does that anger last and for what cause should it last in order for us to be able to navigate in life, to get in and out. One of the first things that I want you to know about righteous anger is righteous anger is always redemptive and never vindictive. It's always redemptive. And what this means is, is that the goal in our relationships to be reconciled with someone is not so that you can be the executioner and the judge of all the justice that exists within the world, but rather your goal is as an agent of reconciliation to redeem the relationship as best you can and if you can. And so in normal everyday confrontation, Conflict where you're misunderstood or misheard or, or overlooked and looked past or uh, maybe just, you just feel offended by, by certain things. In normal confrontation like that and conflict, this would be true of that situation. Righteous anger is always redemptive. Your goal in the confrontation and reconciliation, it is to build the other person up, not to tear them down. It's to be redemptive in, in my approach. The second thing is this, is that righteous anger is not something that lasts a lifetime. It's temporary. Sure, there are issues of justice in this world that will not be resolved this side of eternity. And we cry out and we long for, for God to, to send Christ to come back quickly and to redeem the world and to make all the wrongs right of the injustices. But righteous anger is temporary, meaning this. 
After you go and you seek reconciliation, whether reconciliation ever happens or we just got to the idea of forgiveness, I forgive you, we'll work on this process of making amends and reconciling the relationship and building trust back up. And so after we confront, we walk away. And if we're crying, we, we cry, we wipe our tears, and then we look to God to redeem the situation, to redeem the brokenness in the relationship. You know, after Jesus in Matthew 21, he goes into the temple and he starts overthrowing the tables, a perfect example of righteous anger and indignation. But what's interesting about that is not that he went into the, the temple and he, and he kicked out all the money changers. What's interesting is what happens immediately following doing what he did. Immediately after that, the poor and the marginalized, those that needed Christ, they, they were able to still approach him because he wasn't stewing anymore. He, he wasn't indignant anymore. He wasn't angry anymore. Almost immediately, he didn't linger there. And he was able, therefore, to continue ministering and, and meeting needs. And it wasn't like, let's keep Jesus at a, at a distance. He needs to cool down and, and take a chill pill or put his face in the, in the corner of the wall and not say anything or go run four miles or lift waves or whatever he needed to do to cope with that moment in his life. He didn't do any of that. He was immediately approachable and he was accessible and he was available even in the midst of it. But thirdly, righteous anger is not just temporary. Righteous anger, and hear me on this, it is always under control. There is no such thing as a righteous anger that is not under control at all times. There was never a moment where Jesus was not in control. Proverbs 29, 11 says this, that a fool gives full vent to his spirit but a wise man quietly holds it back. He understands when to restrain and when to speak up, when to engage and when to disengage. Righteous anger is always under control. It says elsewhere in Proverbs 15:1 that when we're under control, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word is the thing that stirs up anger. When somebody's getting at you, and somebody is sinning against you or offended you or they're at you or they're picking at you or they're undermining you, what, what, is, our, what is your general response and temperament to that? Mine, on my worst days in my flesh, is to go tit for tat and to respond immediately and to begin to pull out bullets in my pocket and start to shoot them right between the eyes. And tell them in every which way in which they're wrong or they've crossed the line or to, or to put them in their place in, in some ways. That, that on my worst days, that's what it is. But in my best days, I'll live out Proverbs 15, 1 and have a soft answer to diffuse the situation. To turn it in a, in a different direction and, and to alleviate, to redeem the situation. This is what righteous anger looks like. It redeems the conflict that is there. But Jesus says in this text to go be reconciled. And what does it mean to be reconciled? When we confront one another, it means that we have to talk about the issue that exists there. We have to be honest about the sin that is before us. But when we talk about biblical confrontation, one of the first things that we must realize is that biblical confrontation, it overlooks many offenses. You cannot possibly 
live the abundant life that Jesus offers and go around and proclaiming that you are offended by anything and everything. If you're looking for a place to be offended, you will find every single time an offense to take upon. That goes for your marriages or your relationships. If you're looking for a way to pick at your spouse, you can find it, I guarantee you. If they're looking for a way to pick at you, they can find your faults and your insecurities. They can pick at you with those things. But biblical confrontation, it overlooks many offenses. Proverbs 19.11 says, it is to a man's glory to overlook an offense. But let me pause for just a moment and say this. If you've been sinned against in physical, inappropriate ways, that your posture in this moment is not to overlook an offense. Your posture in that moment uh, is to go find an authority that you trust, a spiritual authority that can guide you and to navigate. It is not to pretend as if that thing didn't happen. It is to a man's glory to overlook an offense. Yes, always. But in the case of of abuse, in the case of, of extremely inappropriate relationships, we go and we find help with those that could help us and to navigate those structures and those systems. We don't overlook those things. <coughs> Overlooking does not mean that I stay silent. And so we speak up. Biblical confrontation in everyday relationships, it overlooks the offenses, but biblical confrontation is always gentle, always. Paul says in the book of Galatians, he says if a person is overtaken in a fault, in a sin, Galatians 6.1 says to restore them gently. To be truthful, but to be full of kindness and compassion, gently leading them to the truth of God's word, gently leading them down a path where they can see the gentleness of our Father in that situation and the kindness of his heart displayed to us as we are entrapped in sin and someone lovingly confronts us and tells us where we've gone off or where we've erred and then we are humble enough to listen and to receive it and to be restored. To be restored first to God, but then perhaps then to be restored to to man on a vertical level and on a horizontal level. Biblical confrontation is always gentle. One of the things that I've picked up over the years in pastoral ministry and pastoral care is sometimes people will come to me and say, hey, pastor, did you know about so-and-so or did you know about this? And I'll say, no, I didn't know. First of all, I'm not their Holy Spirit. I don't go around looking, trying to uh, convict everybody or shame them. I don't know, can't be involved in everybody else's life. Not, you know, no, 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 no. And I said, well, if you're aware of that and you're in that community group with them or that's your, your circle, then you're a brother and sister in Christ. You're a member of this church. Like, you go to them. Have a conversation. See if it's true. See, see where they're at. And then I can come help guide you. But one of the things that I'm, that I'm learning, that I'm seeing sometimes in our uh, eagerness to go and, and confront certain things at, at certain times is that too often we are more excited about the confrontation of the person than we are over the grief of the sin. 
If you are more excited about going toe-to-toe and to battle with someone, more so than you are grieved over the thing that's in front of you, listen, don't go. Stop. You're not in the right place. Spiritually speaking, you're not there yet. To come to this place where you can restore them gently, you have to become grieved over the sin that exists amongst the person first. Maybe there's an eagerness to resolve the situation. That's different than an eagerness to go and confront and to put a person in their place or to tell them off in, in the way that you've imagined in your, in your head. But the other thing that I've learned over the years just in pastoral care and, and counseling and being in mediation with people is that we must always attack the problem and not the person. This happens in marriages. This happens at work. Somebody didn't do what they said they're going to do. They didn't follow through with certain things. And we have these issues. And very quickly, we can make it very personal. And our attack is on the person that's in front of us and not actually the problem that we're trying to resolve. Attack the problem, not the person. Thirdly, and the idea of biblical confrontation, to be reconciled to brothers, just a, a bit of advice that biblical confrontation listens more than it talks. It listens for long periods of time. And what I have found with really godly biblical counselors and and pastors who are trying to walk in wisdom, when they get into those moments where they're talking, they're asking and they learn to cultivate and to ask the right questions, to uncover and to know and to make sure that they understand all the things that are at play, they listen more than they talk. In the process of reconciliation, as Jesus calls us to that, we must always seek to understand rather than seeking to be understood. I find in in pastoral care, in conflict in ministry, this is maybe the biggest thing, that I want you to hear me. My motivation is you need to know where I'm coming from rather than me coming in and just listening to where that person is coming from, demanding of, of, of them to do something that I'm not willing to do back to them. I want to be heard. I really don't care about where you come from. And so we seek to understand rather than to be understood. Lastly, biblical confrontation understands timing always. We're going to get to this in the spring when we jump back into the book of First and Second Samuel, and we're going to talk about the life of David. If you know anything about King David in the Old Testament, he got caught up in some really wicked things. He was called a man after God's own heart, which is the most perplexing descriptor you can give of David because David did some very horrible and atrocious things. He had an affair. He killed the husband of the wife that he had the affair on just did some completely immoral things, things that would put him in any other circumstance and in prison for the rest of his life. And he'd be in jail. And David gets caught up in this sin with Bathsheba. They, they have this baby, which eventually dies. And, and in the Hebrew, at some point, God sends the prophet Nathan. And in the Hebrew, there's these little bitty subtle words. And, and, it, and it illustrates a month, from the month of David's sin to the time that Nathan came to confront David. It was a period of about three to four months. And so why is that important? Well, because God could have sent Nathan at any given time to go confront David. 
But the fullness of sin had not taken root in David's life yet. And so God delays Nathan for a period of months so that David would be ready to hear the truth of Nathan's message that he is the man in the story that he tells him about. God says, wait, confrontation is all about timing. And there are many times where we become so eager to rush off and to confront when all we need to do is we need to just not speak and we wait. I had a member in our first service that came up to me after the service and they described a situation that they were in and they were grieved over this sin and uh, and, in relationship to close people around them. And they made this statement that I thought was so incredibly wise. And they said, I'm trying to discern what my role is. And, And as tears are coming down her eyes because she loves the people that are involved in this, she said, all I've heard God say is not yet. Don't say anything yet. Be a presence to them and be there with them. You speak when God says to speak, but right now your job is to be silent. She understands that the timing is not right yet, that the fullness of sin has not taken root in that person's life yet. He, Proverbs 18, 13, he who gives an answer before he hears, it is a folly and a shame. Lastly, I'll say this to you that confrontation, ultimately the goal of confrontation is not to leave us in despair. But biblical confrontation, it it spirals upwards with hope. It brings us to a place where where we come out of despair, our sin exposed, the, the relationship restored, and it doesn't leave us in condemnation, and it doesn't leave us in despair, even though it hurts, and even though it's painful, and, and even though we don't enjoy it from time to time, it always leaves us up. Listen, Jesus never leaves people in a state of shame and condemnation. He never does that once. There may be times where where God reveals some truth into our life and we feel shame and we feel condemnation. Oh, but for a moment, because the gospel of Jesus and all of its gloriousness, it lifts our eyes up to the heavens. It lifts our eyes up to God to give us hope in our relationships. And so if we are going about restoring and reconciling in relationships, it ultimately, in, in the end, it should lead to this upward spiral of hope and not a downward spiral of despair and destruction. So here's how I want to end today. There's a little bit of irony in this text where he says, listen, uh, leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled. But here's what I've struggled with all week. I think some of you are here today and watching online and you've got contempt and you've got anger in your heart towards someone. It could be somebody at school, at work. It could be somebody in your family. It could be somebody at, at church, in your small group, in your community group. And the the gist of the text would be, don't do what I'm about to do and come to the altar and and pray. Uh, Go to that person and to be reconciled. And so in just a few moments when we start to respond, if that person's here in this room and you need to be reconciled to them, go and ask for forgiveness and say, I want to be reconciled to you. Will you forgive me for whatever it is that that you've done in this situation? But there are some of you here today, you're not ready to do that. And I know that. 
Because I know enough about in my life where there's been times where, where I've had to pray, God, bring me to the place. But not just like, I don't feel like doing this. I don't want to do it, and I'm not going to do it. I know I should, but God, bring me to the place. Let me lay my hands down and, and face them up and let you feel what is lacking in my life and get me to the place where I can go and be courageous and I can be reconciled. And I can honestly deal with, with my own sin and my own frailty. Sometimes it, it, it takes, it's a process. So here's my ask this morning. I think some of you are in that process. I think some of you know right now who you need to be reconciled to and who you need to uh, pick up the phone and, and call after this service is over or, or somebody you need to go see and knock on their door at their house and ask for forgiveness. But, but some of you perhaps are gonna be in a process. And so here's what I'm asking. As your maybe first act of obedience in this, would you come down to this altar with me and we, can we pray? Can you pray and seek the Lord? And maybe you're, you're not in either one of those categories. And here's what I want you to do, church. Listen to me. This is, this is the most important time of the week is this moment right here is God's people respond. And what we're asking is, is that, that we would, at the very least, if, if neither one of those two things apply to you today, here's what does apply. You, we, we, as a people of prayer, want to pray for reconciliation and redemption to be in the midst of this church. And we know for a fact there are brothers and sisters here today that need to be reconciled to one another and to others that are, that are not here. So we want to pray for them too. And so I'd ask that you come down and you fall on your hands and your knees and say, God, would you do a work that only you can do? Would you reconcile brothers and sisters? Would you reconcile them to the gospel? If you're here today and you don't know Christ, the only way you can truly be reconciled to someone else is if you are first reconciled to God. And we do that through Jesus himself. The Bible says that if you call upon the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. If you confess with your mouth that, that Jesus is Lord, believed in your heart that God raised him up from the dead, then you will be saved. You call upon his name and you just simply say, God, would you save me from my sins? Would you save me? And be brought into the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Father, would you... Inhabit our praises in this moment. Hear our prayers as we plead before you now to be reconciled to not just you, but to other brothers and sisters. Help us be agents of reconciliation. And we pray these things in Christ's name and God's people said, amen.